Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast of a Coffee. My guest today is Murali Neelakanthan. Murali is a graduate of the 96th batch of the NLSIU and was one of the first India-educated lawyers to have become a partner in an English law firm. After moving back to India, he worked as a senior partner at Khaitan and Company before joining Sipla as a global general counsel. After Sipla, Murli is currently focusing on a variety of policy, education and other projects. Murli has a wealth of experience in pharma and the Indian judicial system which we will uncover in this two episode series. Unfortunately, this will be an audio only episode as we faced some bandwidth issues, but as Murli jokingly put it once, quote, I have a great face for the radio. Stop good. But I really hope the quality of the conversation makes up for it so without further ado let's get into the conversation hi murli welcome to shortcast over coffee but well, thank you for having me great to be here yeah um i i'm going to start off with uh, what i asked one of my previous guests uh, economist ajay shah uh, i was discussing with him uh, policy making and uh, climate change and and so on and so forth uh, and one thing that that propped up in my head was about the 6 week or i think it's 6 to 8 week uh, vacation or holiday uh, of indian courts in the summer um i was asking him if there was an interesting story behind it uh, and uh, just want to put that question across to you as well uh, is there any other country that has this 6 to 8 8 week uh, holiday uh, in the middle of the summer and how does how has that affected speedy redressals the historical basis of this is that uh, you had english judges and the summer was unbearable in india so the english judges would go either to the hills or many of them would go back to the uk so that is the origin of some courts having a summer vacation so the supreme court has a summer vacation the high courts have a summer vacation and they don't coincide so the summer vacation for the high court in bangalore doesn't coincide with the summer vacation for the supreme court in delhi so each of the high courts has a different period of time when they go on summer vacation yeah why have we not been able to change it is it just a colonial hangover so uh, let me answer the previous question you asked which is has any other country got a summer vacation and the answer is the united states supreme court has vacations so it's not an unusual indian thing the reason people think that the courts are on vacation is similar to you and i going on vacation is that they don't see the courts during vacation most of the setup in the court continues to work during vacation so the office works you can file your cases during vacation there are judges who are not on vacation or holiday even during that time so if the court strength is in the supreme court 34 half of them will actually be in court during vacation so we have what are called vacation benches so the court is actually working what is the other half doing now the half doesn't sit the same people don't sit the whole vacation okay 
So some judges will take the first week off, some judges will take the second week off, third week off. So in the end, you will find at least half the court is working throughout the vacation. The other half, during the two months of vacation that exists, will probably take a week off on real holiday. The rest of the time, they have a lot of administrative duties. So if you're a high court judge here, you will be touring the subordinate courts in the districts. You will then be looking at how are those courts functioning? Does something need to be done to help them? You will actually be going and visiting those courts. And those are in the districts. So that is one part of your job. The other part of it is during the regular days and weeks, they would have heard a lot of cases. When does one get the time to sit and write judgment? So a lot of the vacation time will be spent on either administrative duties like this or on actual judicial work, which is drafting judgments. So it is not as if the courts disappear like it was in the British times, that nothing happens during that time. Judges actually work more hours and more days than most people do. So I think it's a myth that judges take off six weeks and then have a great holiday overseas and come back. The one other thing they do is participate in conferences. So a lot of them will go and conduct seminars for high court judges, will go and therefore help with professional education. So just like you would have amongst doctors, a continuing professional education, a lot of judges also participate in that. So we have a National Judicial Academy in Bhopal and you'd have Supreme Court judges actually going and spending time in these judicial academy, either in the National Judicial Academy, and each of the states has its own judicial academy. So in their area of expertise, they will also go out there and help other judges get better. So there is a lot of that professional education, continuing professional education, that judges are involved in. They also have, as part of the administrative duties, lots of committees that they are on. So, for example, there is infrastructure of the courts. Somebody has to deal with that. There will be lots of administrative procedures. They are on committees in the administrative side as well. So there's a lot of this work which otherwise piles up because during the working week, they will have no time to deal with this. They're sitting in court 10 to 4.30. They're reading for the next day and it could be about 100 files to read for the next day. They have to check the orders that they've given in court. So somebody would have typed up those orders and they'll bring it to the judge at the end of the day. The judges will actually have to read that order and check if it is exactly what they said in court. And then those get published, the orders get published. So during the working day and working week, they have absolutely no time to do anything else. So all of this piles up. And this is what they will do during the vacation. Not just the summer vacation, there is also a Diwali break in Delhi. In uh, Tamil Nadu, for example, there is a Pongal break. So it is not the same in every high court, the breaks they have. Totally, it may be the same number of days, but they have it during different periods of time, depending on which high court it is. So you will have puja holidays in Calcutta, more than you will have, say, Dasra in Calcutta. Uh, 
whereas Karnataka and Bangalore, you may have a Dasara break and you will not have a Pongal break. So in the end, you will find that it's the same number of days all the high courts are working during different times of the year, perhaps. The summer breaks are not all at the same time everywhere. But the judges in the end end up working, I think, a lot more than most people think they do. So the cause for not delivering speedy justice is not court vacation. There are many other causes, but it's definitely not court vacation. Mm. Yeah, thank you for breaking that down for uh, for us because you know these are some of the little known things uh, that you said about uh, judges attending seminars and uh, and performing some mentorship. Uh, definitely, you did bust some myths there. Um, and now moving to uh, you know just law in India, the courts. Uh, there is this common narrative that uh, the redressals are slow. Uh, and there is a lot of time spent. And I, I want to uh, take you back to your episode with, with Amit Verma on the seen and the unseen. Uh, there is no incentive uh, to go behind a case uh, where you know you spend close to 20 to 30 years of your life to get a judgment. And again, the judgment in your favor is still a probability. Uh, so where do you where do you see this going? Uh, is there is there anything being done to uh, for for speedy redressals? And what is your take on the general uh, state of courts in India? I think the problem is well known. It is more well known now than it was earlier because now we started gathering data. Earlier, it was large numbers, but we didn't really understand what they were. So we'd get judges saying, I have disposed 98% of the cases. Or you would have individual judges being praised for their high disposal. So these are the terms that were used, continue to be used. What we've now got is some initiatives, both by the courts themselves and by research bodies. So, you know, one of the things that uh, you spoke with Ajay Shah was about a project that they were doing on, on looking at efficiency in the system. Uh, and they have a very good research paper out on uh, a series of cases that they've done. We've got another organization called Daksh, which has done some really good work on this issue of understanding what it is that the courts are doing how are they classifying these cases? What are the kinds of cases that are not getting resolved quickly? What is moving quickly? So we're getting a little more data. But the government solution to all of these problems is still ancient. So the government solution to this problem is, oh, there are lots of matters pending in a kind of case, say land. Let's have a tribunal for it. Oh, there are lots of income tax cases. Oh, well, let's have a tribunal for it. Oh, there are lots of IP cases. Let's have a tribunal for it. Uh, there are lots of consumer problems. Let's have a tribunal for it. There are lots of environmental problems. We'll have a national green tribunal for it. So the 80s was a proliferation of these tribunals. So they assumed that if we get more judges, 
we will solve the problem. These will be specialist judges with specialist knowledge. And we will solve the problem because it will all not end up being either in the civil court or in the high court. So I think what happened then was there was an understanding within government that if we get lots of these experts doing specialist areas of the law, we will be able to resolve these issues without coming to generalist judges, which is civil courts or the high courts. And this was a, about a 40-year project. You know, It started off with the uh, tax, but it then went into everything else. And the solution to the problem was if we get more judges and more courts, we will resolve these issues quicker. The problem with that approach was that the quality that was produced in the high court was not easily replicated in these tribunals. So nobody took these tribunals to be a good substitute for the high court, which meant that you had people in those tribunals who didn't have the quality of a high court judge. So you couldn't replicate that quality in there much of what they said in their judgments got appealed. So it didn't really solve the problem, except that you got one round of dispute resolved. A good example of this is the income tax appellate tribunal. You have four levels of appeal. So you first have an assessment of your taxes, which is by an employee of the tax department. Then, if they don't like it, if the department itself doesn't like its own officer writing an assessment of it, or if you don't like it, you will go and appeal. To who do you go and appeal? To another employee of the income tax department. And let's assume that person says, yes, 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 the Indian citizen is right. The department goes in appeal over itself to itself one more time at the tribunal. The tribunal, again, doesn't have truly independent members. They're all former employees or current employees of the tax department. And let's take the next case, right? So you have one in every stage. You win also in the income tax appellate tribunal. The government goes in appeal again over it to the high court and then again over it to the Supreme Court. So here you have a situation where the government is unwilling to accept its own decision and then continues this litigation. And it happens to many, 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 many cases. So in the rest of the world, if you have a government authority giving you a decision, the government will not appeal it. Whereas in India, the government itself will appeal it. So in every one of these cases, you will find that whichever is the losing side is unwilling to accept the decision. And is that because is that because government, I mean, all these government organizations are not centralized, which is why government is appealing itself? No, this is the income tax department, which is a central government department. But there is no trust in the quality of what that assessing officer is doing the Commissioner Appeals is doing, Income Tax Appellate Authority is doing, the High Court is doing, or even in many cases, the Supreme Court is doing. 
So we have, we have cases where it has gone to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has held against the government. And what does the government do? It amends the law retrospectively. So that is how the government approaches the courts or litigation. That it will litigate this to death. And the government is the largest litigant in this country. So if we reduced government litigation, just private party litigation is not significant. More than 50% of the cases is by the government. By sheer numbers, the government is the largest litigant, especially in the higher courts. So that is our first problem. Before independence, courts were not so log-jammed with cases. So we have a situation where when the Supreme Court was first set up, it didn't have enough cases. Judges had nothing to do for most of the year. If you see cases before independence or soon after independence in any of the high courts, there was hardly any pendency. Things got sorted out in months. We got decision in months. And very few cases got appealed from the high court up further to the Supreme Court. So we can find some inferences from this. One, that the parties accepted the decisions of the courts and didn't continue to litigate. Two, that the quality of these decisions was quite good, which means that lawyers felt that it would be not worthwhile to challenge these cases up. Those are the two fundamental, I think, inferences we can draw from what was happening earlier to what is happening now. So what has changed? Our perception that the decision is good and just and fair has changed. Secondly, we have government which should lead by example, but chooses to litigate everything all the way to the Supreme Court all the time. So if the government doesn't trust the judiciary, that it is very difficult for the common man to say, yes, we trust the judiciary. Then you have the lawyers who are inherently interested in litigation going on forever. So they will say, listen, you have a fair chance in the next appeal. And you have a fair chance in the next appeal after that. And citizens think, yes, this is what our lawyers are saying. This is what the government thinks. And we have seen cases which should never have gone in appeal winning. So everybody then gets hope that, you know, the next time I can, I have a good chance of winning. Uh, and we haven't done enough analysis to look at what cases go in appeal. How often do they win? On what grounds do they win? As a result, the Supreme Court is dealing with cases which it should never deal with. You know, should a tenant be given 30 more days before he is evicted from his premises, goes up all the way to the Supreme Court. You know, should a husband pay 1,000 rupees more per month to his wife as maintenance, interim maintenance, pending divorce, goes all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court doesn't trust the high courts. The high courts don't trust the lower courts. Therefore, everything goes to the Supreme Court. This didn't happen before before independence or soon after independence has happened. Post-independence, we just had lost faith in the judiciary. We think somebody up there can do a better job than somebody before us. And therefore, there is a chance. That has spurred on 
too much litigation and the supreme court is largely to blame for it it just lacks discipline it is meant to be a constitutional court but 90% 99% of the cases have nothing to do with the constitution don't require an interpretation of law they just orders so everything goes to supreme court that is causing pendency so if the supreme court can hear everything then the high court can hear everything the high court can hear everything then the court below them can hear everything and that goes on and on and on and on yeah it's a it's an interesting um, data that well not pure numbers but at least um from from your experience is that you know things going all the way up to supreme court started to increase after after independence and to me it feels like you know a, a combination of factors right uh, like you mentioned lawyers giving uh, people hope and then saying that hey you know you have a chance of chance of winning it and what what i want to what i want to get to is why did it start from independence uh, because a lot of what we have in india the the judicial system is borrowed from uh, what the british gave us uh, so so why this sudden spike from 1947 was it the lowering of the bar of judges or uh, you know just not so much faith in the in the lower courts many things have happened i think the way we perceive the judiciary has changed dramatically in the uh, pre independence soon after independence era we accepted the verdict whatever the verdict was we accepted it and said this is an independent judiciary we accept the verdict and there is very little chance that the high court will strike down this order high courts decided to intervene more and more which they didn't do earlier why did they do that because they saw the supreme court intervening more and more which they hadn't seen earlier so the the message seems to have come from the top we will hear everything so every little application from the civil court goes all the way to the supreme court a tiny application whether you know some small matter interim order from the civil court goes all the way to the supreme court interim order from the family court goes all the way to the supreme court so every little order of every little court now has a chance in the supreme court which didn't happen earlier so the supreme court starts the top and says listen we will be a constitutional court we will not hear any of these matters and we will impose costs which is real costs not 5000 rupees real costs of litigation on the losing side which is there in the law the code of civil procedure very clearly says the losing party pays but in no case does a court actually award costs so the uk from whom we borrowed this system has a very clear principle that the loser pays therefore anyone who thinks about going to court has to budget for their own costs their own lawyers plus the other side's costs which doesn't happen in india so everybody is basically bought a lottery ticket in court there's no downside to it to litigation so if you look at incentives the big disincentive to litigate elsewhere in the world is that 
you have to pay a price for it in india you're not paying a price for it take the majority of the cases the civil cases where let's assume that there is somebody who you have tenanted your home to refuses to pay rent you want to evict that person now if that case is going to take ages to get decided and it goes in appeal every time and at the end of it what happens at most you will get back your property but you won't get all that lost rent now if the tenant realizes that hey i have to pay market based rent every day that i'm in this property then the tenant will think twice and if you add 18% interest to it then suddenly the tenant will think listen i can't afford to pay my lawyers the other side lawyers rent and interest then suddenly you look at the behavior of that tenant similarly if you look at commercial transactions somebody owes somebody money somebody is in possession of land somebody hasn't delivered on a contract if you suddenly make this a purely commercial basis for decision making and allow economics to function you will suddenly find a lot of rational people in india today it makes no sense to be thinking in this manner because the incentives are that if you've got a property you just sit on it if you've got somebody else's money never pay it back if you owe somebody money don't bother paying it back so the incentives are all wrong and the court system hasn't done enough to change this mentality so we have a culture where people don't take the law seriously because there is an incentive not to follow the law that is <laughs> that's quite crazy uh, to be honest so i think the key takeaways would be that you know appealing is cheap uh, when it should be actually expensive and the onus is on the supreme court to push uh, that hey we are not going to accept anything and everything uh, we have our standards and you know you have to accept what the verdict of the high court is that a is that a fair assessment of where uh, law is in india and where it should go next yes if it's led by the supreme court the other courts will follow impose costs make sure that there is a uh, a clear economic analysis to be done by anybody this is exactly what happens in the uk that even if you think you know i don't think this is a fair judgement but am i going to risk you know 400000 pounds going in appeal the answer will be no because the risk of losing that is a lot more than what you've lost already in the first round so it dissuades a lot of people from going in appeal unless they have a very good chance of winning hmm. and there isn't a good chance of winning if you look at the appeal rates in the uk they're very very low in india virtually everything gets appealed makes sense yeah uh, you were mentioning about uh, data coming in and uh, there is a lot of data these days uh, could you could you dive deep into uh, the quality of data and the how how data is collected uh, and the evolution of courts uh, in adopting something 
computerized systems from let's say the early 1990s to, to now? Uh, we've had very little success in the early years with data collection. It is because we don't have a uniform system of recording the data. So each state has a slightly different way of doing everything. Each court in each state has a slightly different way of doing everything. So it is very difficult to find national data that makes sense. So aggregation doesn't work. Then you're down to states. Now, the head of it all is the high court in the state. The high court itself doesn't follow a uniform system of recording data because it was all paper, so it didn't really matter. So the first stage is trying to get all of this data classified in a uniform manner and then seeing how workflows work. So, you know, the rest of you in the, I think the tech world and uh, industrial production and all of you guys understand how workflows happen. In the law, we haven't sat down and done that exercise clearly for each high court. So the way you classify something is so uncertain that it's very difficult to track. It is not that something comes in appeal. It comes in appeal in so many different forms. So you can have a civil appeal, you can have a criminal appeal, you can have a miscellaneous appeal, you can have a first appeal, you can have a second appeal, and you have applications in each of these appeals. So it's very difficult to keep track. It is not as if the whole case moves somewhere. It is just an application that may go up somewhere and that has a life of its own. And depending on where it ends, you start again from the bottom. So each of these things is so uncertain for data to be collected on it that there is a huge cleanup process that needs to get done. Now, that is something that only started a few years ago, is trying to understand from a design perspective, what is happening? How do these cases move? What is the life cycle of this? Where does it start? How many loops does it go through? So just that exercise has just started. So the Dutch research, and I think Vidhi did some research as well. They're all trying to figure this bit out. Is take this, try and classify them properly to be able to get data on them. So that's how low down on sophistication we are. The computerization of courts is really, uh, again, at a very, very, very early days. We have only now got to telling you what the court will hear tomorrow. So if you go to the website of the high courts, only the high courts, you can figure out what is coming up tomorrow. You can figure out in most cases, but not all, what a little bit of the history of that case is. So when was it heard previously? What order was passed at that time? And in the cases that have finished, you might get a copy of that judgment, but only for the last few years. Many courts have said, we will allow you to file electronically. But that again, in the government sense is that you upload it or email it, or you give a soft copy, but you also have to give a hard copy. So we haven't completely eliminated paper. The Supreme Court is really the one that has led some of this computerization. So at least with the last couple of chief justices, they've tried to eliminate paper. 
So they're saying, don't file paper. Don't bring paper to court. They've got rid of a lot of paper in court. They're all using you know, laptops and tablets in court hearings, discouraging lawyers from using paper. So we've had judges tell lawyers, listen, we're not going to hear you with paper references. We're going to have a consolidated bundle. So there is a PDF. It is labeled and indexed in a particular order. Please refer to paragraphs and page numbers from that. So we are all able to look at the same piece of paper or the same page. That has been a move. It was started a few years ago, but during COVID, it's really taken off. And now, at least in the Supreme Court, you have judges who are, many judges were unwilling to look at paper. So they've all got laptops in front of them or tablets. They insist that the lawyers should use tablets. So at least that part of it, which is filing, uh, accessing schedules, agreeing that we are all looking at the same piece of paper with the same index, the same page number, that has happened in the Supreme Court. Now, it's a long way to go before it trickles down to the high courts and the civil courts and the lower courts. Yeah, I think I think COVID must have accelerated a lot of these processes, right? Just by force and not by choice. Um, it yeah. would also be great if um, you know we could digitize all the pre-computerized era uh, papers. And I think Indian Kanun, I, I see a couple of websites uh, that are doing it. Uh, I don't know if they are digitizing it verbatim, but uh, there is still a lot of resource. Um, you mentioned about uh, Daksh and Vidhi, uh, you know, some independent research uh, organizations. Are they receiving any support uh, because they are taking up a task that is uh, going to shape the future of how courts function if they if they get uh, get to where they want to? Uh, are they receiving any support from the government in their uh, endeavors? Uh, I don't know for a fact, but many of their projects will not be possible without the government and or the judiciary wanting this to be done. Well, let me put it differently. If the government and the judiciary didn't want it done, Daksh and Vidhi and the others could not have done it. So the fact that it is happening means that somebody in government and a few people in the judiciary are keen for this to happen. I don't know what kind of support they're getting, but clearly the fact that it is happening means that they are being supported. Now, can the government do more? Obviously, yes. Can the judiciary do more? Obviously, yes. Uh, but at least a few of these organizations are able to do research, are able to put out these numbers. They seem to be credible numbers. However, we may think about their level of sophistication of some of this analysis or the numbers themselves. It's a great start. Uh, we need more of this to be done. You must understand also that the judiciary is not a monolith. So you can have, let's say, a chief justice of one high court. If he really wants to drive change, can make it happen. So we've seen with Orissa, uh, Justice Murli, there has done a spectacular job there in the two years that he was there in driving digitization, driving technology. And also, as you said, COVID helps. Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, as I asked the question, I was wondering, you know, who else will fund the research, right? The big corporations do not have a stake in <laughs> improving the state of uh, law in India, or the courts. 
and uh, you know they should receive funding from somewhere unless they are so passionate that they pull in their own money so yeah it completely makes sense that they must be getting some some sort of funding from the government um i have to get donor funding don't forget so a lot of these places do get donor funding uh vidhi i know has uh, private donors as well and institutional donors uh, so does daksh so there are people interested in law and justice who think of access to justice as being important it is an sdg so you know there are interests involved in this uh, there may be interests from tech companies because they benefit so you know if you look at webex for example cisco is benefiting from it so there is clearly some interests involved in moving the agenda along oh yeah that's that's a great point um i came across uh, one of your uh, speech collections uh, the speech uh, is state of indian legal profession where can we go from here and uh, you mention in the speech quote it is no wonder that no one in india thinks of perjury as an offense but rather as a rule stop quote uh, is that a big problem uh, ethics in with indian lawyers and uh, what have been your observations over the years lawyers are only part of the society as it is so you can't expect an higher ethical standard from a lawyer then what prevails in society lawyers are not saints so if you have a society of sinners then we're just one of you and that is the challenge that as a society we are quite casual with the truth we don't think of it as a big thing even in our own personal lives we like to think that we are truthful but it's not a value that we cherish uh, you know it's nice to put it on the emblem and say satyameva jayate but we lie regularly every day in our daily lives and it's a truly indian trait and we don't think less of it you don't see this in the rest of the world you know, i've practiced in the united states and uh, and in europe generally you will find that people rarely lie it's just not a thing it's much easier to be honest uh, simple things like why were you late today you know i missed the train i missed the bus you know i party last night and you know couldn't wake up at when the alarm rang it's very basic stuff they don't lie about it uh, they won't lie about i sent you an email have you not seen it uh, the checks in the mail have you not received it this is very common indian things we lie about uh, why were you late it's always traffic why did you not get this thing done of course i got it done i sent it to you yesterday very common indian traits and this is how we grow up with lying all the time you know i know i'm lying you know i'm lying everybody knows i'm lying and we find no shame in lying at all so that then translates into what happens in court which is people are lying so lawyers are lying the clients are lying everybody knows everybody is lying so we've accepted that as a standard and nobody's ever got punished for perjury so you've got a combination of these two things that lying is acceptable and again what is the incentive everybody lies hoping that my lies are better than your lies and i win and there's no incentive on anyone to stop it 
So if judges took it seriously and punished clients and lawyers, which is what would happen in the UK, then you won't have any of it. You won't even have minor mistakes. You know, it just doesn't happen that a lawyer in the UK has the same duty as a lawyer in India. The rules of practice are virtually the same. In India, we have to verify what the client says in court. So whatever is filed by the client through the lawyer is verified by the lawyer. It is the same in the UK. But here, nobody verifies anything. We encourage clients to lie so that they can win the case. Whereas there, even if it was a slight error, it may not be hugely material. It may not be the complete story. The lawyer's future career is at stake. And therefore, no lawyer will take the risk of even getting close to the line. We'll stay clear of any controversy on this. It's easy to get caught and the consequences are drastic. Now, if we had that standard in society, we'd have that standard in court here. The example I often give is you know, Jeffrey Archer, future prime minister of the United Kingdom, going to jail. For what most men would lie about being seen with a prostitute. It's as simple as that. It was unacceptable to lie. And he went to jail. That's the level of integrity one expects. So yeah. If you don't have that here, this is the consequence. Everybody lies. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, people ask me what was the biggest difference between, uh, you know, studying in India versus studying in the US. And I think uh, this is one thing that I tell people is the, um, is the honor system uh, that I noticed here yes. in the US. Uh, and I had, I had the fortune of being uh, like a teaching assistantship first year of my grad school. And uh, my first sort of stint was grading papers. And, you know, I did not go to school in the 90s. Uh, you know, it, it was like 2014 and 2015, where, you know, there was a good access to internet and almost all the level 101 courses had answers all over the internet. You know, you could just do a Google search and you could get the answer and, and write in your homework. But the number of people who, you know, accepted the honor system and just would do what they know uh, was remarkable. And, you know, I, I was putting myself in their shoes and I was like, you know, will I be this ethical if if I was in their place? And I, I the answer was no, uh, because probably the, the system, you know, I shouldn't blame the system because it's me, right? But but somewhere or the other, it, it does play a role that, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing about ethics. Uh, yeah. And what amazes me is that India being you know, so loose with respect to law, uh, there are minor scams and, you know, uh, you know, land deals and corruption, but, you know, overall, it still remains, uh, it does not become a lawless country, you know, let's say something like a Syria or an Afghanistan, like there are these civil, uh, you know, things that people do uh, when it comes to, you know, buying and renting property and so on. But, but when it comes to crimes, um, this lawlessness has not translated to, to more crimes or, or am I wrong there? No, you're very wrong there because uh, 
our crime rates are exceptionally high. Our reporting of crime rates are where they are expected to be. So we are not even honest in recording actual crimes. So that's our problem, that because we don't record enough, we look lawless compared to the developed world, but on par with other developing nations, perhaps. So there is a, a huge impact of not complying with the rule of law that doesn't ever get recorded. So I'll give you a simple example. If you look at the under trial population in Indian jails, it's a large number. They shouldn't be there at all. They don't ever get access to court. So their case never gets heard and they're stuck in jail. They have no access to justice. So if you had to go to a police station and lodge an FIR, the policeman has no interest in lodging the FIR in investigating the case. So what happens? The crime doesn't get reported. If the experience of communities is that there is no point reporting the crime, then the crime never gets reported. If the crime never gets reported, the perpetrators of the crime will therefore now be emboldened to continue with larger and larger, more and more crimes. And that is the reality of India, which we don't see. The data doesn't show this in the way it should. But if you go back and see this kind of data, how many crimes are actually reported? How many crimes are actually solved? How many convictions do we get for the reported crimes? How many convictions do we get for cases that go to court, which are less than the reported crimes? And then look at unreported crimes. Then you have a completely different picture. Mm. Yeah, uh, you also talk about, uh, you know, law academics uh, engage with the shaping of the law. Uh, and you note in your, uh, in one of your articles that that aspect is much lower in India compared to, uh, compared to the Western world. Uh, why is that? And, you know, engaging uh, law academics in shaping the law, uh, how can it, how can it improve the law itself? The teaching of the law has had an impact on how teachers view themselves. So if you go to, let's say, an engineering school, they are pro producing engineers, not researchers, not scholars. So it is a very vocational approach to the profession. So you will find the same thing with law in India, that you have to get a degree so that you can practice a profession. They don't see themselves as academics. They see themselves as teachers and trainers. You perhaps realize it more when you're in the US or you're in Europe, that universities are a place for education. I, I remember often Oscar Wilde saying, it's where you learn to play elegantly with ideas. That is not the purpose of legal education in this country, has never been. It has been to train people like you train plumbers or you train electricians. That is the mentality that they've had here. Therefore, you don't have 
academics actually contributing to progress in the law. There are very few good academic journals in India which deal with legal issues. There is no requirement to publish for academics. You get on the UGC scale and you get promoted by seniority. It's only in the last few years that you have to publish somewhere. And you know the story of academic publishing in India. You know, anybody will publish anything for a price. And so to tick the box for your promotions, you can write any garbage and it will get published. So there is no, again, where is the incentive for academics to participate in the progress of the law? It is very strange that I say this because one of the qualifications to be a judge of the Supreme Court or the High Court is that you're a jurist. So one of the categories under which you can be made a High Court judge or a Supreme Court judge is that you're a jurist and that is academic work. But we have never in the 75 years appointed anyone to a high court or a Supreme Court on the basis of that qualification. So it says something, isn't it? That yeah. we've appointed lawyers, we've appointed judges, we've promoted judges, but we haven't found one academic in 75 years who's good enough to be a high court judge or a Supreme Court judge. So why would a teacher in a law college or a law school be incentivized to do anything? except if they are self-motivated to publish. We're seeing a little more of the publications in the last decade or so. We've got truly young academics producing good work. But again, there is no engagement with the judiciary. How many of them are preparing, like they would in the US, amicus briefs to the Supreme Court or to the High Court in important matters? Very few. So again, if they wanted to engage with the law, they would work closely with where the law is today rather than write papers about where the law was 30 years ago. So that, I think, is the big challenge. Uh, the younger academics are engaging a little more. They're writing about contemporary topics, contemporary ideas. Their work is being cited by the Supreme Court. But we need to see them take the next step and say, we will write a brief. We will go and present before the Supreme Court. That hasn't happened yet. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you have broken things down so remarkably well that, you know, my my whole perception of uh, law and the court system in India has changed. So that was the end of part one of my conversation with Murli Nilakantan. Definitely check out part two, where we talk about pharma, manufacturing practices and quality control. Bye for now. <laughs>